Not long after that, I felt the shivering stop. At last, I'm getting used to it, I thought. A great tiredness was seeping through me. I was, I realised, drifting off to sleep. I could still feel the searing cold, but my body was no longer capable of fighting it. I felt my defences crumbling, felt it entering the innermost recesses of my flesh. It was not exhaustion I experienced now, so much as an inner numbness, as if my limbs themselves were hardening, one by one, turning me into a statue, as cold and lifeless as the David of Florence itself. I tried to cry out, but my scream was somehow also frozen within me, and I found I could not so much as open my mouth. The next thing I remember, I was being carried into the kitchens. I woke up looking into my master's dark eyes, before the Persian dropped me unceremoniously to the floor. "'You won't do that again,' he said as he turned to go. I never again played with the ice. But something else had changed, too. It was not just that I no longer trusted my master. The cold I had felt never seemed to completely leave my body so that there was always a sliver or two of ice deep within my bones, and perhaps even within my soul. A few days after my incarceration in the ice house, the middle finger of my right hand began to turn black. Ahmad inspected it without remark, then summoned two of his brothers to hold my arm down on a block of ice while he amputated the finger at the knuckle with a cleaver. Warm blood spurted onto the ice, turning to pink crystals as it froze. "'It won't affect your work,' he said when I stopped screaming. Each night, as tired as a dog and half-frozen to death, I crawled into the palace kitchen to sleep next to one of the big, open fireplaces on which meat was roasted a la brace over embers. The kitchen workers grew used to me, and no longer chased me out with brooms and knives. I began to watch the cooks as they went about their work, observing how they pureed fruits to intensify their flavours, how they extracted the perfumes of violets and orange flowers to flavour creams and liqueurs, how they made a verjuice from grapes and quinces to set the lighter fruits. But when I tried to suggest to Ahmad that these techniques could be of use in our own work, my master was scornful. We are engineers, not cooks, he liked to say. Cooking is women's business. We know the secrets of ice. Indeed, these were ancient secrets, a body of knowledge which had been passed down from father to son within a few Persian families, suppliers of sherbets to the court of Shah Abbas in Isfahan. Some of this knowledge was contained in stained leather-bound notebooks, their pages covered in diagrams and spidery Arabic writing. But most was kept only in Ahmad's head, in a set of rules and maxims he followed as blindly as any ignorant country priest reciting a Latin liturgy he does not truly understand. To five measures of crushed ice add three measures of saltpeter, he would intone. Why? I would say. Why what? Why must the ice be crushed? And what difference does saltpetre make? What does it matter? 
Now, stir the mixture clockwise twenty-seven times. Perhaps the humour of saltpetre is heat, and the humour of ice is cold, and so adding the one to the other means that, and perhaps I may beat you with the paddle if you do not use it to stir the ice. I had been working for the Persian almost two years before I dared to ask what the ices we made tasted like. Taste? What does the taste matter to you, child? Ahmad said scornfully. I knew that I had to be careful how I answered if I was to avoid yet another beating. Sir, I have seen how the cooks try their dishes as they make them. I think I will understand better how to make these ices if I know how they are meant to taste. We were making an ice flavored with a syrup of the small sweet oranges that some call China oranges, and some.